Hello and welcome to Films That Time Forgot, a show where we look at films from the 80s, 90s, 2000s and even the early 2010s that have been somewhat overlooked by the general public. I'm your host Adam Thornton and today we're going to be looking at the Ridley Scott slash Michael Douglas action thriller Black Rain and joining me is um, fellow podcaster Scott Murphy. Hi there. Delighted to be here. So, Scott, um, now you um, now you run two separate podcasts. Uh, could you tell us a bit about them? Right. Um, so, uh, first of all, I'll tell you about uh, New Horror Express, um, which is a, a podcast that uh, I'm now, sadly, kind of going to bring to an end quite soon. But um, it's basically, it, it was a, a fortnightly interview podcast um, where I talk to uh, mainly horror film directors, but also uh, writers, actors, um, uh, novelists, uh, just people involved in indie horror today. And it was it had a very kind of modern focus. So it was all about what's happening in horror right now. Um, so so that's that's that one. It, it's been going um, for about five years. There is. Uh, over 180 episodes available out there uh, for people to listen to, um, about 140 of which are, are interviews. We did a couple of specials um, on like kind of horror films of the year. And also um, I did like a kind of series on kind of guilty pleasure horror films um, from the all again focused on ones from the, the 21st century. Uh, so that's that's that one. Um, that was the first podcast I, I started. And then a couple of years ago, I started a second podcast um, with actually a fellow horror podcaster uh, called Craig Draheim. Um, we were both discussing uh, during during the pandemic that like um, we had kind of, uh, you know, at the start of that, we were kind of going back to films, um, you know, kind of comfort films from, from teenagehood and also, you know, we both have a love for action films, and that's how uh, the podcast All 90s Action All the Time uh, came about, because uh, 90s action is our favourite, because we're both kind of in our 30s, so like it's the it's the ones that, that we most remember and have been the most uh, impactful for us. And th that is, we've done various different formats, where initially it started out is we would look at... Um, uh, a certain star's uh, filmography in the 90s. So we did a season on Steven Seagal, on Sylvester Sloan, on uh, Kurt Russell, Val Kilmer. Um, and then, but more recently, we've kind of changed the format. And now it is, uh, we're kind of looking at the films of, of 30 years previous. So um, even though there's been some interruption this year, because I've, I've had some illnesses and stuff, uh, basically this year we're looking at the films of 1993, and then, uh, yeah, next year, uh, we're going to do a season um, where we're looking at 12 films, uh, one each month uh, from 1994. Uh, so that's uh, both the podcasts. So, um, so when you were looking for films to cover, did you come across Black Rain at all or did that kind of just slip you by? Um, no, uh, no, because uh, Black Rain is 1989, so, ah, so yes. we, we only we, we are all 90s action all the time, exactly. So we, we, 
We only cover uh, films from 1990 to 1999. We're very specific on that. <laughs> very exact with the dates. I, yes. I, 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 yeah, I like that. Um, I mean, I've guested on your podcast twice, and I can and I can say right. um, to to the listeners that it is worth a listen to. Um, whereabouts can you listen to the two? Um, so most podcast providers. I mean, I guess like most people listen to it on um, iTunes or Apple Podcasts, whatever it's called. Um, I Stitcher, I think, doesn't exist now. So that used to be a place list people listened to, it, but that doesn't exist now. Um, so the main places are basically um, iTunes and Spotify. But like they are available on other podcasters as well. But like the main places uh, you can look out for it's iTunes and Spotify. They're easily findable uh, there in New Horror Express and all 90s action all the time. That's great. So moving on to today's film, had you heard of it before? Yes, um, I had heard of it. Um, so the interesting thing is, um, when you contacted me about covering this film, I was mildly surprised because you know I've listened to your previous episodes and and I had not seen um, the first couple of films you you covered the, the Denzel Washington films, um, although I'd heard of them and never seen them. And uh, when you covered Swordfish, that made sense to me as well, because I was like, oh, yeah, I remember that coming out when I was 16. But like, yeah, nobody talks about that now. But this film, um, when I was looking up, I realized that it has kind of been forgotten. But when you first mentioned it to me, like in a message of being like, you're covering this, I was surprised because I am, you know, 38 and I know a lot of people in their late 30s and, you know, early to mid 40s. And I feel like amongst that age group, particularly amongst action fans, this is a pretty well-known film. But like, yeah, the more I kind of dug into it, the more people were like, oh, this has been overlooked. This is underrated. This is forgotten. Uh, so I was I was like, all right, okay, that's 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 interesting. So yeah, I was I was kind of I was kind of surprised when you you first uh, brought this one up to to cover. But yeah. Yeah, because I mean I mean, Black Rain came out in September 1989, just two years after Michael Douglas had had the massive hits of Fatal Attraction, which was the number one film worldwide. And he had had Oscar success with Wall Street. He was also coming off the successes of The Romancing the Stone and Jewel of the Nile with Kathleen Turner. And Black Rain was definitely... Whilst it didn't fail, it definitely didn't perform, I guess, as well as the studio Paramount, who also produced um, Fatal Attraction, were expecting. It got kind of mixed reviews in the US. Um, yeah. Some A lot of critics accused the film of being racist, um, of containing Japanese stereotypes, and uh, critic Gene Siskel in particular complained about Michael Douglas sort of dominating the film. He he felt that it had, had Michael Douglas been more passive and more subservient to the Japanese characters, then the film would have been more, more effective. Something which I'm not going to disagree with him about because I'm, we're going to come on to this obviously later, yep. but it is one of the main sticking points of the film that I don't feel quite works. Um, but interestingly enough, the film actually did better internationally and was in fact a big hit in Japan where it was filmed. But because Ridley Scott um, 
was fed up with the amount of red tape he had to get through, you know, filming permits in mm-hmm. and all that. He relocated filming of the climax to LA. And if you look at where it's set, you can kind of tell it doesn't look quite like what you would expect Japan to look like. Yes, I think they've tried to make an effort to um uh to try and make it look like Japan, but like yeah, no, it does it's quite jarring that 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 kind of final battle sequence. Because I read that as well about the Napa Valley thing. And I think once you know that you can kind of tell of being like, Oh, this is yeah, this doesn't this looks a bit odd. This doesn't look like Japan. And I it's interesting what you said about like the studio because like I I think you're right. I feel like the studio thought I underperformed, but I looked up the numbers and um the the actual website, the numbers. Yeah. Um and it was the eleventh biggest film of nineteen eighty nine. Um yeah. and I know that like they um I know that they take less money um from international ticket sales than they do from like North American ticket sales. Mm. And maybe that was the disappointment because unusually i i feel like this was slightly unusual for the time at uh, the the what is called the domestic share the north american share of the the box office was only like 35 percent or something yeah yeah um, it was very which, small which is which whereas i feel like a lot of like hollywood pictures it would be more like uh 50 you know uh kind of can, you know particularly at, at that stage well, I mean, um, looking, looking back in the eighties. I mean, looking it up, it grossed forty-six million in the states on a thirty million budget and eighty-eight million worldwide. So, I think it's safe to say, whilst it did okay in the states, it did much better overseas. And I wonder if the critical reception had a lot to do with it. I guess, I guess so. I mean, that's entirely possible. But I mean, like, I mean, that's still a box office of like. 134 million and you know it's said by box office observers that you need to make i think something like two and a half times your budget to get your money back but that's like four and a half times the budget so like that that's they're well in the the black for the for the for the movie you know (laughs) yeah but at the same time i think back then they took less money internationally than they did domestically and the international market wasn't as well regarded back then Oh no, for sure not. It's it's definitely it was you know it's very different uh, back then uh, compared to compared to what it is now. And yeah, I think that the the profit sharing th- uh, agreement that they have with like international uh, distributors it was it's it's far less money than um, than uh, what they were getting uh, at home. But even at that, they still should make their money. They still, you know, its box office run still should have made its money back. But then again, with Hollywood accounting, who knows? Who knows what's <laughs> profitable anymore? Um, I know with this, it, I definitely, don't know, man. it definitely seems like they were expecting like another lethal weapon, but set in Japan, because the film itself kind of kicks off in a very lethal weapon esque way. We've got. The character of Nick Conklin, um, New York cop, played by Michael Douglas, taking part in a motorbike race. And we see him sort of cruising down a bridge um, on his bike as a baroque song by Greg Ullman, I'll Be Holding On, plays in the soundtrack. And we get and we get him taking part in this motorbike race, which he which he cheats in order to win, which kind of sort of gives you a hint about his character, that he's very much this sort of cop he's the, he's the standard 80s cop that doesn't play by the rules with this devil may care attitude um i don't know if you felt the same 
with this opening scene. I did, yeah, I did feel the same. Like, um, but I do feel like, um, basically because just to, to skip ahead, just very slightly, um, just almost directly after this, there's like a kind of corruption hearing, and yeah. I do feel like this, um. First of all, I feel like this uh, opening scene is kind of like an ego stroke of like, you know, this character is cool, you know, and, um, you know, this is this is Michaelis Douglas being like, hey, this character is cool. But also, I think it is a ploy to like get you on the side of the character and be like, oh, well, I'm, you know, I'm for this kind of cool guy. So when you get to the corruption here and scene, you're, you know, you're kind of more on the side because I feel like. They kind of deliberately did that to try and get the audience on on side before the corruption hearing. Because if you just open with the corruption hearing, people will be like, why am I following this shit, Ed? <laughs> yeah. Well, it's interesting because right after, actually, if you go immediately after the motorcycle scene, we see him um, delivering money to his, uh, delivering his divorce payments to his estranged wife and being nice to his kids. So it's further sort true. of adding to, adding to sort of, you know, this idea that, you know, appealing to the audience, saying, "Oh, you know, he may have some rough edges, which are which are a heck of a lot, as we see later on in the film." But he's actually actually a really nice guy. He's actually deep down got a heart of gold. Yeah, I think yeah. There's a couple of kind of um, kind of save the cat moments uh, early on um, to to be like, "Oh yeah, okay, okay, we're we're supposed to we're supposed to like this guy," which. Um, it becomes a thorny issue oh, later on, but we'll discuss that. Uh, yeah, we'll, we'll discuss that, that more often. You know, um, oh. for, for... but right now we're uh, on his on his way to the corruption hearing. Um, uh, oh, Nick... can I mention as well that yeah. like there's a couple of like fun cameos right at the start of this. Oh film. yeah, obviously they weren't they weren't known at the time. No, but in the kind of uh, the motorbike race, there's a cameo from Louise Guzman. Yeah, I was going to say. And in the corruption hearing, there's a cameo from Stephen Root. Um, so I, I which I was like, oh my god. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's <laughs> always interesting. In it's always interesting, particularly in these '80s movies, to see these guys before they were famous, but. Yep. We then get introduced as Nick is driving on his on his riding on his way to his corruption hearing. We're introduced to his partner Charlie, played by Andy Garcia, who does this sort of matador um, thing where he holds out his coat in front of Nick and challenges him to challenges him to charge. And then, right at the last minute, he whips his coat away. Um, Charlie's a fun character, and I really like what Andy Garcia does with the role. He's kind of an effective foil to Nick. And for a large chunk of the film, he's really the only likable white guy as well. Yes, that is that is very true. Uh, I, and I think that, like, yeah, part of me wishes it was kind of almost the other way around and Andy Garcia was the main character. Because, <laughs> like, Andy Garcia really knocks this role out of the park. And he, I, I think, as the, uh, you know, not to spoil anything at the moment, but, like, um, basically... Uh, during his role in the movie, like he is, he gets progressively more fun. Um, and oh yeah, he, yeah, he's just he's just a great character, and like I I think that like yeah, um, I just think that Andy Garcia is 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 just really good in this role, and he's he's really funny, and he's you know like he's kind you know he's quite cool, and yeah, I, I was really digging the Charlie character. Yeah, I like how he calls Michael Douglas babe as well. 
that sort of reminded yep. me of um, Hot Fuzz like 18 years later. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's true. So when Nick arrives at, at, at the station, he's um, he's he's involved in an in, in internal affairs hearing, which reveals that Nick, along with along with um, two other cops, stole money from a drug dealer that they allegedly stole money from a drug dealer that they arrested. Yep. Um, I think it was something like 73,000 that they stole. And Nick gets very pissed off and says, you know, why do we, why do, why do, you know, innocent, hardworking cops have to take the heat for this, for, for this sort of thing? Corruption extends everywhere in New York. And this feels very reflective of not only the kind of, the sort of cowboy cop genre of eight of of eighties within eighties cinema, but also the general sense of corruption in America and I, and I guess New York at the time. I think so, um, but like, I feel that this is like a kind of classic of his genre. I mean, like this isn't a term that would have been used back then, but has kind of been used kind of reflexively, you know, from from our vantage point looking looking back, you know. People often call these types of movies copaganda movies, mm. and this is part of the classic copaganda checklist, where um, internal affairs are presented as the kind of scum of the earth, or anybody anybody who's a bureaucrat, any any kind of red tape is is seen as like evil. Um, you often, you know, in these types of movies, you might get like a liberal lawyer character who's like a complete straw man who's just there as a punching bag. Um, so, you know, this is this is a classic move of the genre where internal affairs are painted in the worst possible light ever. How dare they uh, investigate hardworking police officers? And like, yeah, I guess like, you know, a lot of these movies, just like this movie, like makes excuses for police corruption, police brutality, you know, they're fun movies but you know if you look at them with too uh, cold uh, realistic an eye um, they can start to uh, fall apart and uh, feel quite reactionary in their politics I also feel like the whole comment Nick makes about hardworking cops would have been more effective had we shown him actually being good at his job beforehand rather than taking part in the motorbike race which oh, I know right. is, yeah, which rather I know than supposed, just being an 80s cool guy. <laughs> which I know is supposed to set up his like biking skills like which crop up later on in the film, but I do kind of feel like they maybe should have worked in him actually doing some cop stuff and actually busting up busting up crime, you know, instead of just focusing on the race scene. Because it feels a little bit show rather than tell. Um me. Yeah, I guess. Like, I mean, I guess like they could have had i guess maybe they could have foreshadowed that in yeah in another part of the movie um i i can see your point of view where it might have been nice to have like um uh to like have like a kind of cold open where they're like doing a bust on on another case and we see a, a you know or maybe even we we see the you know maybe even we see the kind of drug bust where they stole the money and, and maybe we yeah. don't quite see them steal the money, you know, but like, um, but it, on the surface, it looks like just a successful uh, drug bust. And, they, and then we cut into the corruption here and that could have worked there yeah, too. So following the, infer the internal affairs hearing, um, Nick meets up with Charlie in a restaurant frequented by not only the mafia, but as Nick comments, the accuser. 
and uh, Charlie is sort of staking them out. And and this, and it's funny because Nick's early comments and his whole animosity towards the Japanese throughout the film kind of reflects the, the, the time period that this film was made, you know, in, in that Japan was doing incredibly well uh, economically. Um, it was sort of making all sorts of inroads into new technology like video games and video recorders. And they were also increasingly buying up American companies. Like, I think they bought, um, I think Sony bought Columbia Pictures the year this film was made. So, um, so really the whole, one of the main themes that runs throughout the film is this whole idea of the American fear of the Japanese taking over and the Yakuza sitting down with the mafia in a restaurant is just another, is to, it's just yet another, it's viewed as sort of another example of, oh no, the Japanese are taking over. Um, I, I don't know um, if you thought Yes. That. Yes, I did think this. And the interesting thing is like, you know, we're talking about uh, for, forgotten films and I wonder if like part of the reason this might have been forgotten is like I feel this is like a kind of forgotten part of history like in this in the sense of you know everybody knows about you know those kind of films like your kind of uh your Rambo 2s your Top Guns you know your stuff stuff like that that were released at kind of the height of Reaganism the height of the Cold War and stuff like that people kind of know about that but like this kind of late 80s very early 90s um period where there was this kind of uh, America kind of felt this existential threat of like Japan uh, taking over. Um, like that that was kind of a blip in the kind of very late eighties, very er early nineties, and you get like a section of films for maybe between about eighty eight and ninety three or something yeah. like that. Oh, that kind of have this kind of fear of the Japanese, and then of course the Asian market, you know, collapsed, and you know everything kind of changed. Um, once you get further into the nineties, I but I, I feel like that's just like it's been mainly forgotten as well. So like these, these movies that kind of reflect that have, have, have kind of they seem a bit odd. They seem a bit like, um, yeah, out, out of place or, or kind of like people are like, what, what, what is this? <laughs> well, especially today when so many of our generation has grown up with Japanese culture through like video games yep. and anime and, we don't have any issues with it. So it does seem sort of strange to have them viewed as the other I guess so, and, and I guess like the the yeah, I I, I guess like that's like an, an like an American thing as well, like because there there is you know you see the you know because I'm a fan of you know I, I've I've been a lifelong fan of professional wrestling, and um, you see that kind of fear kind of you know kind of running through throughout and it obviously it, you know it's partly the you know it's even mentioned in this film the second world war it's partly the long tail of the second world war and, and that kind of mm -hmm. animosity towards the japanese but like that is long gone and i think like you know if you certainly if you're under certainly if you're under 35 but even if you're like under 40 like all that seems like like such a long time ago you know that uh, doesn't make it doesn't really make any sense but yeah yeah, yeah there it, it is odd kind of looking back that it was you know it was framed that way and there was just much a much greater fear and a much more suspicion of of japan or, or, or japanese culture um particularly in america well, the um, well, the sort of well, the sort of seemingly peaceful sort of union between 
the Yakuza and the Mafia is broken up by the entrance of our main villain, sub-boss uh, Sato, uh, no, Sato. I'm not going to make the same mistake Michael Douglas does later on in the film. I'm going to pronounce the name properly. Sato, played by actor... Yeah. Played by actor Yusaku Matsuda. This is his last film. Um, he yeah, actually yeah. made this whilst he was dying of cancer and stopped all cancer treatment so he could finish working on the film. Which is crazy. Which is cra- absolutely crazy. I'm not too familiar um, with uh, with Matsuda's work. I, I have to say, but no, I was, you know, as part of like looking up for this film, I was, I was looking him up and, um, and yeah, it's, it's, I didn't realize that he was like the visual inspiration, um, for a lot of anime characters, yeah, including Kenshiro from uh, Fist of the North Star and my favorite anime character of all time, Spike Spiegel, uh, from Cowboy Bebop. Uh, so I was I was fascinated to, to read that. I mean, he gives a great performance, really sort of yeah. evil and cunning and animalistic. Yet at the same time, you can understand where he's coming from. You can tell he's motivated by a sense of resentment and a sense of wanting to rise, uh, rise up, uh, rise up through the ranks. And it's amazing that the guy was dying as he was making this film. It doesn't come across at all. No. No, it, it it doesn't. Uh, like it doesn't come across in in, in the performance. And and like he he looks remarkably well. Yeah, uh, I have I have to say, you know, the only kind of thing that I can compare it to is uh, Raul Julia in yeah. Street Fighter, who um who despite putting in an incredible performance in Street Fighter, being by far the best person in Street Fighter, and really uh you know just slaying his role. He does look very ill. He looks very gaunt, and he, you know, he, he, you know, and, and if you know, oh, yeah. um, that he was ill and dying during the picture, it makes sense, you know. Um, but because I knew, because I read about that about the bladder cancer and stuff, you know, I I guess I was kind of looking out for that of, of like signs of him um, looking ill. But he he didn't, he, he you know looked. Uh, I I don't know if it was just. Um, uh, good makeup or, or or what but like he looked remarkably well I have to say so Sato um, so Sato confronts the Yakuza boss um, sitting at the table um, takes a takes a box out of his jacket and then slices his throat right in front of everybody else and then runs off with Nick in with Nick in hot pursuit and the chase and the chase um, between Nick and Sato is really well filmed. They sort of um, Sato sort of escapes into like the sort of meatpacking plant, and Nick's sort of going through, sort of looking for him, um, going through the plant looking for him. And then Sato suddenly gets the drop on him, and what follows is this struggle between Nick and Sat and and, Sa- and Sato. Which is really well choreographed. Um, I think there's even a couple of kind of martial arts moves, like throws and kicks thrown in there, and and Sato starts strangling, starts trying to suffocate Nick with a plastic bag. Um, it's really well filmed, very intense. I mean, there's not a fantastic amount of action in this film. It's more of a kind of procedural thriller, but. Yes, um, but 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 what action yeah. there is is just really well filmed and by Ridley Scott and 
this scene is kind of very sort of nail biting as you don't know whether Nick's going to escape. But eventually Charlie catches up to them, holds Sato at gunpoint, and he get and he is arrested by by Nick, Charlie, and the other cops. Um, I mean, I, I mean, I, I don't know if you thought the action scene was. I don't know if you shared my excitement with this action scene. Yes, I I did. I think um, um, this uh, this scene is one of the best scenes in the movie. There's, I I think, like the kind of end scene, which obviously we'll get to, is probably that has the best action. But like as like a a purely action moment, I think this is. Uh, amongst the best action moments of the film, and I think there is an intensity to, to it, uh, particularly when you know when uh, Nick is struggling for his life when, he, when he's got the the, the plastic bag uh, suffocating him, and then like kind of Sato comes out from nowhere, uh, and I think like it is it is really well filmed because I think when um, I think particularly later on uh, when the kind of camera pans out. Um, uh, you you kind of notice that like Michael Douglas is not the best on screen fighter mm-hmm. of all time. He looks a little bit clumsy, but oh, like, it's not too uh, bad. But like, you know, it's, it's 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 okay, it's okay. But like, um, you know, he's not totally unconvincing either. I'm I'm just saying, you know, like he's not, um, he's not the best. He's not he's not up there with the the kind of best action stars, um, but. That, but I think this, you know, because it's kind of all kind of film, kind of close quarters. It gives a little, this this uh, extra intensity, and, and yeah, you get a mixture of martial art moves, and there's a bit of knife fighting and the the, the plastic bag thing. Um, so yeah, I was uh, I was pretty thrilled by this scene too. So back at the station, um, Sato's I Sato's identified as being a member of the Yakuza. Um, Nick wants to know more about the the box that Sato took. And you know why? Why are the um, why are the yakuza collaborating with the mafia? And he's then told by his captain that the Japanese en- embassy wants Sato extradited back to Japan, and that Nick and Charlie have been assigned to ex- to escort him back, uh, much to Nick's displeasure. And he's watching Sato in the interrogation room. We get a moment where even though Sato can't see through the glass off the kind of interrogation room, he sort of knows where Nick is and sort of gives him a threatening sort of gesture. He kind of touches his fingers to his eyebrow, which I don't know, is that a Yakuza gesture or just a general sort of threatening gesture? I don't know. Oh, well, I wouldn't... I. I don't. I don't have an extensive. I mean, other than watching uh, several yakuza, you know, Japanese yakuza films, I don't have an extensive knowledge of the yakuza. So I don't know if that's like some sort of uh, yakuza signal. But I, I think I interpreted it as just kind of, kind of like a generalized kind of um, action movie villain threatening jester kind of thing. So on the flight to Japan, um, Nick's complaining to Charlie about kind of about extraditing Sato. And they and they talk about this one of the cops who was involved in um, in stealing the money, and Nick sort of tries to justify why he did it, and Charlie's saying it's you know not really an excuse. Nick sort of says 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 you know Charlie doesn't understand you know you know you've got to, when you've got to pay for a family you'll do whatever, and it kind of foreshadows what he says to what he says kind of later on. It's him very much trying to justify cops being corrupt which is something which is very 80s 
Yes. Uh, I mean, I guess like what I was saying earlier about the kind of propaganda thing, uh, this this is a, a kind of a classic move where we kind of um, minimize uh, police corruption or police brutality. Um, you know, a lot of these movies uh, kind of do that. So, so, yeah, once again, that whole conversation again ties into what we were saying about the about sort of the whole, I guess, the propaganda thing about Nick Nick um, sort of arguing that cops can sort of be morally grey if they have to be. Yeah, I I think so. Like I think that there there there's a lot of argument made of this, you know, and and you, in fact, you even see it in films that are superficially critical of the police, of like um something like Training Day, where it's like. Um, you know, Denzel Washington's become corrupt because you know if you if you're out there for that long, like you just naturally become corrupt. You know, like it's inevitable. You, it's it's got that kind of feel to it. So, like, yeah, I I think like there's a lot of this of like, oh, you know, you don't know, you're not a cop, so you know you don't understand. You know, if you if you were here on the streets, then you'd understand, and we'd all be corrupt together. It's so like. Yeah, and I think like, yeah, it just um, it's something that doesn't necessarily, you know. Obviously, I'm of a, a particularly liberal bent, so it yeah, doesn't same, something same sits here. well tells doesn't sit well with me. Also, I think that uh, something else which feels quite '80s as well is, um, and I know that Sato is like an evil guy and all that, but there is a moment where um, it, Conklin. Uh, kind of pretends to like stretch out his arm oh, yeah. and elbows elbows Sato yeah. in the face, and yeah. and it and it's not a serious moment at all. It's completely played for laughs. Yeah. And you're supposed to you're supposed to be like totally on Conklin's side of being like, ah, oh, what a cool guy, ha ha ha. Um, yeah. and it just feels like kind of awkward and a bit ugly. Yeah, it's um, especially in this age where we're more aware of police brutality. For sure, yeah, definitely. <laughs> So after so as the plane lands in Tokyo, Nick and Charlie are met by what appear to be police officers with an arrest warrant for Sato, and they hand Sato off to the police, and all seems well. But as but as the um as the as the police leave the aircraft, on the other side of the plane, Nick and Nick and Charlie bump into the real police with a warrant for Sato. And it turns out that the that the that the police who they actually gave Sato to were Yakuza in disguise. And Nick Nick runs out of the plane with his gun, but it's too late. And at the police station, both him and Charlie try to find the identification of the fake cops. And here we get a sort of a glimpse of a culture clash as Nick's Nick's frustrated with one officer who can't speak in, can't understand English. And Charlie sees um, our third main player, Detective Inspector Masahiro Matsumoto, played by Japanese legend uh, Ken Takakura, who was in a similar, um, who was in a similar sort of um, East Meets West action film, East Meets West action film rather, with Robert Mitchum called The Yakuza, made in the mid seventies. He sees, so Charlie sees um, Masahiro Matsumoto, otherwise known by them as Mas eating noodles out of a mug. And then this culture clash continues when Nick and Charlie 
um, meet are about to meet um, the superintendent in Tokyo about the whole about the incident, and Nick, and this is where and Nick says a particularly racist line here, um, which I'm going to warn anybody who's listening: um, if you're particularly sensitive to racial slurs, um, cover your ears for this one line. He says he can't find a nip in this building that speaks English. And of course, Mass um, introduces himself to Nick and he says he does speak English. Uh, that's a really oof moment that kind of, that would not appear in a film made even three years after this. No, I, I well, at least I don't think so. Um, like, yeah. And it's I think an ugly moment. Like, it is an ugly moment, and I I guess like uh, Conklin. I mean, the whole film is is kind of like a redemption arc, and I guess like um, I guess he is presented as a kind of anti-hero, but we're kind of we're kind of prodded to be on his side as well. He's not like a total. Mm. It's it feels like the film is kind of on on his side maybe not in this moment because obviously we do get the pushback line um from uh from uh Matsumoto. um uh, so but it yeah just it, it just also it just feels unnecessary as well i mean you could i guess you could have uh i guess you could have culture clash moments you know um of like feeling alienated in, in another culture or or suspicious of another culture without yeah without throwing racial stories around but again you know this is i guess this was this this was the, the um you know the time in in, yeah. in the 80s and i i like what like you say i think that even you know and there's plenty of things plenty of problematic things in, in the 90s uh, that we we talk about on on our show uh but but yeah i i, I think like you say, I'm not. I'm not sure this would fly, um, even like um a few years uh, later. Um, I was I was going to ask you a question as well. Uh, something that something that I might think like counts against the film in terms of like the argument or like whether it's it's racist or not racist was um most of the Japanese isn't subtitled, and like my problem with that is that um. Or certainly on the you know version that I watched on Prime, it wasn't. Um, it kind of robs the Japanese characters who don't speak English of of any agency. Like it just you don't really know what their characters are. You have a kind of vague impression of them. I mean, and I, 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 yeah. I mean, I yeah. think that was a convention of a lot of eighties films. Like we recently watched yep. Karate Kid Two, which is set in Japan, and they had a similar thing. As well, I think yeah, it was I just think not, so. not not wanting to include eighties blockbuster filmmakers, not wanting to include subtitles in their films. And also, to be fair, there is a plot relevant conversations later on with the yakuza that do include subtitles. So yeah, it's not it's course. not completely unsubtitled. It's not completely subtitled. That 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 is true. That 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 is true. And I get, I get the uh, like. I sort of get the filmmakers thinking, like particularly of this, and like you say, it is a common trope of the time. Um, 
and I, I kind of get it that you're supposed to um it's supposed to be that the um the the audience feels the same alienation as the character because the character doesn't understand the language you don't understand the language you're supposed to be all in the same boat um but at the same time like because Conklin is such an arrogant character and is it, like he doesn't feel alienated you know so you're mm -hmm. not in the same you're not in the same shoes as the character because the, the character is kind of just stomping about it as if he owns the joint the whole time so it, it doesn't so you're not getting that vicarious experience anyway so i, I just I, it just bugged me and I, I know i know it's something that was common at the time and it bugs me in other films that do it um yeah it just annoyed me i mean i think alienation is kind of hard to show in an action hero really regardless of yeah, the genre but, but but particularly in the 80s so i think yeah i think i think that would be a hard thing to show in a film like this for sure i i yeah i definitely agree so um, we get more culture clash as Nick sort of argues with the superintendent and mass where they don't understand his sarcasm in terms of phrase. We get a funny moments where Charlie's trying to translate, um, which adds a bit of light relief. And um, yeah. Nick basically wants to know what exactly Sato's business was in New York. And mass is demanding, is saying that the superintendent demands an apology from Nick and Charlie for their screw up at the airport. And and Nick's sort of losing it and saying, fuck you, we're not apologizing. And and he initially blames and he blames the police for allowing the accuracy to gain easy access to their sort of identification. Um and what then happens is, is that the superintendent allows Nick and Charlie to um tag along with Mass in investigating the case, but he calls them but just as interested observers, not 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 on official police business. So they have to surrender their weapons, and there's a funny moment where they have to give over not just one set of guns, but another set as well, which is a good commentary on how, like, American police officers are quite kind of trigger-happy. And, yeah. yeah I, quite, I, quite like, I quite like that, where, where they... Um, uh where they initially give over their guns and uh, then we get like um the translation back that the super sends it's like no all of your guns and then they, <laughs> yeah. they bring out they bring out more more kind of hidden weapons <laughs> that they thought they were going to get away with uh you know as you can clearly tell by michael douglas and andy garcia's faces yeah so nick mass and charlie investigate a yakuza murder at a nightclub and Nick recognises the dead man as one of the fake cops at the airport and also notices that he's got a US dollar bill shoved in his mouth. And and he also ignores um, Mass's orders that they have to leave now by saying um, the phrase, I usually get kissed before I get fucked, which again, Charlie has to try and translate to Mass. Um, Nick then sticks around the scene and notices a white woman talking to an officer who turns out to be a fellow American, played by Kate Capshaw, a nightclub hostess Joyce, who's from Chicago. And I I have an issue with this character because I'm aware they needed another American for Nick to talk to, particularly after an incident that happens later on in the film. Um, uh -huh. He'll need another American voice there. But I don't know why they had to get, like... I mean, Kate Capshaw's very good in the role, I have no problems with her as Joyce, but I don't know why the character had to be a white American. 
could could it not have been like a Japanese American? Because that would have made things a bit more interesting. You know, in terms of culture and identity and which culture do you belong to the most? And are you sort of caught between two cultures? You know, that sort of thing. I mean, yes. I, I don't know what you think. That, that, um, so I agree with you, um, but also at the same time, um, I think, you know, it, it's, I guess you know we're looking we're looking back at this um from from the 2023 vantage point and I'm sure at the time we I you know it, it's it's one of those things that when you know doing the 90s action pods um you know when you go to the movies now uh you just kind of take for granted the kind of diversity it happening in film you know and um I think much more uh, and then when you go back and you watch films from the 80s and 90s, you realise just how white cinema was, mm. American cinema, Hollywood cinema, um, was up until very recently. And I think from a studio marketing point of view, they probably felt that they needed to have like another recognisable white actor to sell to an American audience. Um, that is probably the cold calculation that they were making. I think that what you're saying would have made a more interesting character, a more interesting film. Um, but yeah, that's probably the marketing calculation of the time I'm imagining. So Joyce, yeah, it's a shame. So Joyce then goes on to explain that Sato is fighting a gang war, um, a gang war between another member of the Yakuza, an older boss called Sugai, and that the best thing to do is just to not get caught in the middle of it that everyone's aware of it, and the best thing to do is to just not get involved, which is what Joyce herself is doing. Um, when when Nick then leaves the club, Mass asks him if, if Joyce gave him any info. Nick basically tells him to fuck off and and demands also, and demands um a translated information from not only from, from Mass from Mass, not only about Sato and the nightclub murder, but also any any other relevant information on on the case um by next morning so he's already kind of taking control as if he owns the place yeah absolutely and i think the weird thing is like in a minute we get a scene that i think is actually almost even more racist than the racial slur scene and i'll explain why right so obviously in the racial slur scene um basically we get a bit of pushback as if the film is saying you know from from mass uh, as if the film is saying he was wrong to say that you know that is racist so you know it, it's an ugly moment but at least the film has a bit of pushback there is a scene uh, that j just coming up um where uh basically nick and charlie like kind of make a game of like deliberately mispronouncing sato's name and it's played for laughs um, so I, I think we're supposed to join in the fun of like it is fun to like deliberately mispronounce Japanese names, um, um, and it feels really disrespectful. And I felt it was almost more racist than the racial slur scene. Right. Well, we'll come on to that um, because we do get a kind of a walking home. We, we get a scene where Nick and Charlie walk back to the hotel. They they refuse Mass's offer of a ride home, and they kind of and they're confronted by this motorcycle riding gang which again foreshadows a scene later on in the film 
Um, what I will say, one of the good things about the film is how Ridley Scott shoots Japan because the scene where they're walking home, we see that they're surrounded by all sorts of, we see they're surrounded by really bright kind of neon lights and signs. And I think uh, Ridley Scott does a really good job of showing the kind of Japanese cities. Yes, yeah, I, 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 yeah, it's there. Um, the cinematography and the way this is directed is all top notch. I mean, like pretty much, I can't think of like a Ridley Scott movie that doesn't look oh, amazing. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm of his films. I think um, uh, I've seen about twenty of his films, and um, I, I like about half of them. Uh, but I think all of them work really nice. <laughs> right. Now, on to the scene you were talking about, which takes place the next morning at the um, police station. So basically, um, Mass and Mass, Nick and Charlie find out that Sato um, Rose that was 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 one sort of um, undersugai as a sub-boss, uh, as, as an underling. He then rose in ranks to become a sub-boss. Um, and to become a sub-boss and now in this scene i don't think the mispronunciation is meant to be deliberate it's i think it's meant to be it's meant to show nick and charlie being unfamiliar with um with japanese culture and names because later on nick pronounced the sato's name properly Um, i I think think it's just it's meant it's meant to be a showing character growth like initially they pronounced his name as sato and then they corrected and then they kind of ignore it because ignore it because they're busy sort of looking for information. But then later on, okay. um, Nick then pronounces the name properly because he's come to gain a greater understanding of Japanese culture and a greater respect of mass. At least that's what I think is supposed to be conveyed. Okay. Oh, that's that's interesting that you interpreted that. But I think like for I, the way I remembered it is like the uh mass uh said the name sato like twice in the scene and it felt like they were just running roughshod over him no um and that's the, the way i interpreted it. but that's i mean like you're yeah i mean it, that could be the the intention uh behind the scene what you're what you're saying right there yeah although there is another um moment where they do take control of mass where when nick sort of sees a group of officers tooling up with guns outside their office asks mass what's going on Mass initially lies and says um, it's a training exercise, but then when pushed further, he says that the, that they that they have a tip off on Sato's hideout. So mm-hmm. Nick and Charlie decide to tag along, uh, dragging an unwilling Mass with them. And and then when then when they get to Sato's hideout, there's no sign of Sato, but there but there are um, yakuza there, one of whom Nick recognizes from the airport. And he headbutts the guy, which is very classy and very tactful behavior. <laughs> um, yeah, and I guess like again, the um, the way the film plays it is not necessarily like um, this is Nick being excessive or or kind of or kind of crazy, um. The, the the film isn't kind of uh judging him for this action it it seems uh it seems like we are supposed to to support this and, and be like that because this is just the kind of yeah i guess like it was all the time you know the kind of uh um yeah. you know this is just the kind of wild card character he is but like i think the kind of problem of that is um 
basically, I think it's like this movie to me, and I don't know, I want your opinion on this as well, because maybe this is just my sticking point, is uh, tonally this film is interesting, I think. Yep. Um, and I think like some of the police brutality stuff, if you are in a kind of slightly elevated cartoonish reality like the lethal weapon films you can kind of get away with it because mm. it feels entirely separate from our reality um or if you double down on it and you don't really make your hero a hero at all like you can get away with it because you're commenting that this mm -hmm. this hero isn't really a hero but this film falls somewhere between kind of lethal weapon and to live and die in la where lethal yeah. weapon is like a kind of cartoonish reality where you kind of support them because it's kind of crazy um and then to live and die in la it's basically like they're not heroes at all like everybody's a scumbag like the villains are scumbags the heroes are scumbags you know like it just lives in a kind of bleak nihilism um and this this kind of sits awkwardly between those two poles i always feel Yes, I would agree with you. And it it becomes this sort of tonal dissonance becomes even more apparent uh, in the next couple of scenes because we see um, Charlie and Nick come across in Sato's hideout US dollar bills, which Nick quickly pockets. Despite mm -hmm. uh, and, and Charlie then says, you know, we need to show this evidence to Mass. And he does at a police sort of kendo class and it's sort of presented sort of positively as like, hey, look, we got information for you, Mass, on, on what Sato's doing. Um, Mass, however, however, says that he saw that Nick, that Nick stole evidence and sees this as, as um, dishonourable, that Nick not only dishonoured him, he dishonoured the whole, the whole police department and that, uh, and that Nick's superior in New York has been informed of this crime. And Nick sort of get, gets really angry with this, says, you know, fuck you, we're trying to help Mass, we're trying to help you out here. You know, you don't rat on your superiors to me. And he then and he then not only grabs the kendo grabs another ken, a kendo stick and aims it at Mass, but he then but he then hits him with the stick and shoves him to the ground. It's like the ultimate kind of ugly American white male American attitude that you got in a lot of these 80s films and it just it really sticks out because this isn't really meant to be a, a morally ambiguous neo-noir Nick's supposed to be our, our protagonist here yeah no you're 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 right and um yeah there, there is a few moments like this where it's just I mean he is I have to say that um yeah, I don't want to. I don't want to spoil anything because we're we're not um, at that point. But I I know certain people who who really like this film. But like, I have to say, like the first hour of this film is as much as there's some action beats that are nice. As much as there's some interesting things going on, the character of Nick Conklin is almost unbearable for the first hour of this film. Oh yeah, he is so annoying. Like to the point that I was like, God, I wish it was just like Charlie and, and Mass investigating uh, investigating this. Like I hate this character, and I know it's supposed to be like an anti-hero, and you're supposed to be on the fence about him. It's supposed to be gray areas, 
but he's just such a dick that like you know and even the kind of moments that are supposed to be the nice moments that of him showing his nice side or the moments where you're supposed to you know think he's a cool guy or whatever like just don't really work for me like because he's he comes across so unlikable so sleazy that even when he's like playing nice i always like you know there's some motive behind this there's some other ulterior you know ulterior thing going on um because like he's such a dick the rest of the time so yes um i and by and large enjoy the second hour of this movie much better than the first hour. okay but well one useful thing nick does do is in front of the superior and mass of the superintendent in mass, he burns um, one of the notes he took, revealing it to be counterfeit. Counterfeit. So mm. Sato's involved in a counterfeiting operation, uh, presumably against the US. And he then basically, um, uh, then he basically tells off mass. And then we go to back to the nightclub, where Nick and Charlie are living it up with some hostesses. Um, Charlie invites mass over. Um, who's sitting in a corner by himself to join them, despite Nick's um, disapproval. And then Mass and Nick get into a massive argument where basically, again, sort of reflecting the conflicts between America and Japan at the time, where where um, where Mass basically says that um, America lost its way after the war and Japan basically won the peace by becoming the main sort of technological power and nick basically says well you can't come up with an original idea so fuck you and then and then kind of storms off and charlie has to make the peace by um by getting by dragging uh mass on up on stage and doing a very fun karaoke rendition of it's all baby it's all right whilst uh giving mass a present of his tie and we get to see can 10 it's one of the few really lighter moments in the film. Um, Andy Garcia shows off his great singing talent and we get to see Ken Takakura cut loose. Um, it's a really nice moment and it just makes you wish that Charlie was the main character. Yes, uh, as, as we mentioned a couple of times, yeah, uh, I think like Charlie would have been the better main character. But yeah, um, I think like this is the the absolutely highlight for uh, Charlie's character and and for Andy Garcia because he really is uh, the focal point uh, of this scene and it, you know you just really get swept up in his energy and you know when he pounces on on stage and he's talking to the uh, he's talking to the piano player and he's tuning up and then he, he you know he, he bursts into the uh, into the Ray Charles song yeah. No, it's a really fun moment. I, I think it's, uh, you know, it really put a smile on my face and, you know, and uh, I've watched this movie before and I knew what was going to happen was going to happen. So, and it, it just made me sad. <laughs> like, oh, yeah. Oh. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Because um, heads up, things are, things are about to get a lot darker pretty soon. Um, yeah. So anyway, Nick's gone upstairs to meet up with Joyce, who... Um, he he asks her how to get how to get to Sugai, who's a regular visitor to the nightclub, and Joyce once again says she can't help Nick. Um, she says that Japanese culture is still very strange to her. That as a gaijin or a, aka foreigner, um, she is left out of a lot of Japanese business, and Nick will be the same. And she just tells him once again to let the police handle things, and. 
And um, Nick basically tells Joyce that, you know, sometimes you've got to pick a side and Joyce says, hey, I'm on my side. I don't want any trouble. So after coming up empty, him and Charlie are walking home. Um, they're walking inside this really nice, what looks like a shopping mall. It's like a shopping mall that's designed almost like a church. And but it's a stunning piece of architecture. Um, I, yeah, I it think, looks really cool. Yeah, that's that's just as a side note. Um, Charlie <laughs> tells tells Nick that he really likes mass, and then tries his bullfight maneuver on a on a on a passing biker, who, unlike Nick, steals um, Charlie's coat, and and Charlie runs after him, followed followed by Nick. Um, and, yeah, which initially didn't make any sense to me until he said, "Oh, the the jacket has his passport," yeah. and I was like, "All right, fair, makes sense now." <laughs> what happens is is that Charlie is then sort of led off into this deserted area where he's surrounded by the motorcycle gang from earlier on, led by um, Sato, who slashes away at Charlie before decapitating him in front of a horrified Nick. Now, this is a real turning point in the film um, where things get a lot darker and we sadly lose the likeable, the only likeable American char character in the film, Charlie. So R.I.P. Andy Garcia, we hardly knew you. Yeah. Um, I guess, like, this is, uh, I guess, again, this is quite typical of yeah. the genre. You either, like... Um, you know, you get the the kind of two characters that are often uh, kind of bumped off at some point in the film. It's either like the older, the 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 much older detective who's you know a few days from retirement, or it is like the the young detective who's like you know just got married or something, or you know is, is kind of the younger detective. You know, it, it's one of those two or the characters to die at some point to spur our hero on to to you know turbocharge our um you know our central protagonist uh and and yes uh so r.i.p charlie yeah we find out actually in the scene after this um where um where where mass meets up with nick at um joyce's apartment that charlie was only 28 and no offense to andy garcia but he looks. He definitely looks closer to thirty-eight than twenty-eight. Um, I was a little. I was a little taken aback when he when Nick mentioned his age because I thought, oh gosh, that's a that's a very old-looking twenty-eight. I I get. I, I don't know actually know how old Andy Garcia was at the time. I, I but, think uh... he was. I think he was like thirty odd, so he wasn't too far off. But it's just I don't know. Maybe aging works differently now. But I just thought he looked kind of. More I like think mid, aging mid does. 30s. I think I think aging does work differently now, um, because people do look younger now than they used to. Like, I particularly I realize this as like a football fan. If you look at like footballers from like the 70s or even like early 80s and look at some of these boys who are like 18 to 21 years old and some of them look like they're about 38 and like <laughs> i definitely think aging works differently now <laughs> I, can, I can tell you a real shock just to go quickly off topic um once this podcast is done google david jansen who died when okay. he was 48 years old and look at a picture of him from like 1979. Um, you can do this after the podcast, but Shall that's do. a sign of how aging worked in the 70s. Yeah, right. Oh, okay. So, okay. I mean, I guess it depends. 
I, I guess it depends uh, what you do with your yeah, life as well. That is true. Because yeah. like I I know that if you look at pictures of like Jim Morrison just before he died, you know, Jim Morrison died when he was 27. And because he was a raging alcoholic, when he died, he looked about 45. Oh, yeah. Um, it's, it's it's amazing what alcohol can do. But anyway, back to the film. Um, Nick is sort of bereaved at Joyce's apartment and Mass meets him and gives him all of um, Charlie's things. He said that he arranged, he made all the arrangements for Charlie's body to be taken back and and says that it's a tradition in Japan to keep one personal thing of the deceased. And um, Nick gives Mass Charlie's badge, but then decides to hold on to Charlie's gun as he then goes back to Sato's hideout um, and trashes it in order to find some evidence that will bring him down, um, you know, you know, to, to make up for Charlie's death. He initially finds nothing. And the music, by the way, that plays is that when Nick is trashing, trashing Sato's hideout is um, very like um, his theme tune from one of the Batman films. Mm-hmm. Sounds very similar to I think the main one of the main themes from Batman Begins, you know, dun 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 dun. It's very, very similar. So initially, yeah, Nick it, is, and... it is quite similar. I I think like um, Zimmer's score is good throughout the movie. Though. Oh yeah, he makes great use of Japanese instruments and synth yep. tones and or- orchestral music. It's it's one of the high points. And this is very early on in his career. This is one of his first major Hollywood scores. Yeah, that's that's right. And like obviously we'd um collaborate with Ridley Scott like a few more times. Oh, yeah. The first time we collaborated with him, collaborate him a few more times after that, because I think he did like Thelma and Louise and Gladiator and Hannibal, I think. Like yeah. he's he's really, he, he's collaborated with them um uh, a few times uh post this. Um but yeah, I think like um I, I don't know if we should maybe leave that to them, but like I think like Zimmer's score, um along with the cinematography, is probably the best thing about oh, yeah. the film. Oh, yeah. So Nick and Mass are initially empty-handed, but Nick notices some sequins on the table, and he traces this back to the nightclub. Uh, the film has very limited settings. Uh, a lot of the action really focuses around the nightclub, where mm-hmm. Nick and Mass tail a hostess who they found injured at the initial murder scene at the nightclub. And and they and they um and they track and they track the girl to her apartment, which they stake out whilst we're at a, which they stake out whilst eating noodles at a local market. Um, one of the few moments of kind of small character development with Nick is this that he gets shown by an elderly Japanese woman how to eat noodles. That's it. That's that's um. That's one of the few moments of actual character development for Nick in his appreciation of Japanese culture. Yeah. Um, but also at the same time, um, Mass asks Nick about the uh, internal affair um, allegations, and um, Nick says, "Oh, it's no big deal if we took if if we took the money." And Mass says, "No, theft is theft," and asks, "You know, did asks asks Nick straight up, did you take the money?" Nick says, "Yes." But he says, you know, he needed it to pay for pay for the kids, for the kids' school fees, and 
And um, Mass says, but no, actually, theft, you know, disgraces not only your honour, it also disgraces the honour of Charlie, and you have to think of yourself. You know, you know, you have to think of the units, the police unit, and not of yourself, which very much um, reflects the main, I guess, conflicts between Jap Japanese values and American values at the time, because I was reading up somewhere that with the economy, apparently one of the main American theories for why Japan was doing so well is this, that, that Japanese companies worked as a team rather than the individualism of um, American business people, and that that was why they were succeeding. So I thought that was kind of interesting that they included that moment in there. Yeah, I think that is interesting because, yeah, like you say, it speaks to the kind of culture clash uh, kind of thing and, and the kind of uh the the clash of the clash of ideals of of individualism versus uh, collectivism um but i do think that as it pertains to the story and as it pertains to nick's kind of potential uh, redemption arc um i did think it was quite a quick change around um i don't know what you felt about this moment but when he kind of says like oh you know i needed to you know do it for this and that and you know, I'm not proud of it. Like he's up to this point, he's shown almost no remorse uh, for mm. for for police corruption, and has been quite blasé about it. And so this this sudden contrition uh, didn't quite ring true to me. I mean, I it felt a bit forced uh, for for the story rather than being like a natural uh, character development. It's just like. Yeah. The plot had to get him to a place and it's pushed him there, but it didn't I mean, it felt kind of unnaturally pushed there. You could argue that Charlie's death made him more reflective. I guess I mean, yeah, I did reflect on that and I did I did think that that would be the main argument that it's like uh, the you know that's the dividing line that uh, you know uh, Charlie's death is is kind of snapped him out of a, a this certain way of thinking. And you know, as almost like a mark of honor and respect of of Charlie uh, to kind of come more around to his way of thinking. So, I I guess that is possible. It still felt a bit kind of, still felt a bit forced to me. But yeah, yeah. I, I guess that would be the argument that it was it was Charlie's death that that was uh, kind of spurred this mainly. But you could all yeah, you could also argue there's not much of a change in Nick's attitude as he still wants to break the rules to get to Sato. It's just now he guess he has more of a justification to do it. You know, he's avenging Charlie's death. So I guess I guess with that whole reflectiveness, you had to have some sort of change in his character. Otherwise, he'd be the same at the end of the film as he was at the start of the film. Yeah, that's that's true. Um that's true. And it's yeah, again, it's like it's it's cause you know uh, the character sits in this uh, this awkward place of like he's not he's not a fun character like a Riggs, and he's no. not just like a completely amoral character um, like the characters in To Live and Die in L.A. Um, so I know this is the reference points I keep coming back to. Uh, so yeah, so, so you're like, oh, I guess. I guess you kind of feel like you're kind of forced into supporting him. I was like, I guess, yeah. I guess we have to like him now. I don't know. Well, <laughs> so I'm still not sure. I'm on well, the fence. <laughs> he's, the main, he's the main character. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. So yeah, the yeah, next yeah. morning, Nick and Mass follow the girl, the girl that they're tailing to a bank. 
where she where, where she withdraws a one a a a a dollar banknote, which she then hands off to um to a to a yakuza henchman who Nick recognizes as one of Charlie's killers. Nick and Mass then tail this henchman to a steel to a steel foundry. And there the um and there uh, Sato is meeting up with Sugai. And Nick tells Mass to go to go off and get back up whilst he stays. And and we then find out that um that Sugai that that well, then we find out that Sato has stolen one of Sugai's printing plates that he's using to print the counterfeit dollar bills, presumably so that he can flood the US market with them. And, and Sugai demands the stolen plate back from Sato, says that he knows nothing about respect. And Sato says he wants his own territory that he can rule over as his own boss. And Sugai says, you know, your methods are disgraceful. And Sato says, you know, you're a hypocrite, Sugai. You were okay with these methods when I was working under you. And and Sato says he'll only, once again, they'll only return the plates if he's made a boss um, he'll return the plate because Sugai is one plate, Sato is another plate. If he's if he's made a boss who's equal to equal to um to Sugai, Sugai refuses and Sato then storms off. And as he's storming off, Nick then amb- ambushes Sato and his men. And once again, I'm gonna say this again. Ridley Scott is a fantastic visual filmmaker. Say what you will about his storytelling. But he's a fantastic filmmaker because there's this kind of gunfight fight taking place in this fern, in this sort of foundry that's that sort of shot using kind of using sort of red hot kind of oranges and reds, and they're sort of hiding behind metal pillars, and it's very atmospheric. Yeah, and um, as we kind of discussed, you know, despite the fact that this um, is an action film. Uh, like you say, it's really more of a kind of near noir uh, procedural, and it's more about the um, the investigation than anything. Uh, but uh, you know, when the action does happen, sparse as it is, uh, it is effective. So you know, we we mentioned that that chase at the start of the film, and then yeah, this kind of foundry sequence, this kind of uh, gunfight in the in the foundry is is also um is also really effectively done and yeah i agree with you that it's it's just uh, beautifully shot and um all those kind of uh bright reds and orange you know fiery oranges and all that you know you know coming uh blasting out of the screen at you it's it's really it's really effective and it's it's really uh, fun to watch and i also say should say that um you know we you know, you talked about the meeting with Sugai, uh, the casting director of this film, just oh, killing yes. um, because it's because um, I'm I'm never quite sure how how to pronounce his Tomisaburo Wakayama. Yes, yes, that 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 is that is the name, and um, action fans, of course, will know him from being Lone Wolf from the Lone Wolf and Cub movies. Um, so. Absolutely. A, a, um, AKA Shogun Assassin, for those of you who yes, aren't familiar Shogun with Global Wolf and Cobb. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> so as Sato's getting away, Nick's chasing him, only only for Mass to show up to show up with the cavalry, only they're there to arrest Nick. 
Um, the superintendent then tells Nick that he's going to be he's going to be he's going to be deported um, back to America. And on the flight back home, Nick initially initially admits defeat, but then he sees Charlie's body being loaded onto the plane, and this is this inspires him to escape by. And this um, shows really lacks security. As soon as the airport hostess's back is turned, he manages to kind of squeeze himself into like a lift, a small lift, yes. which he loses, which he which he uses to sort of um, to to sort of lower himself down and to and to then escape the airport that way. So once he's gone off the plane, Nick phones Joyce, and they meet at the uh, and they meet at the at the club. And he asks her how to get to Sugai. She finally tells him uh, the address to a golf club where Sugai's at. And for the only, for the first and only time in the film, we get hints of a romance between Nick and Joyce, which feels very tacked on. Yes. Uh, I think, I, again, uh, we're just speaking to the times the film were made. Um, I think if you watch uh, most 80s or 90s action movies, um, they kind of, most of them feel like they need to have uh, some sort of uh, romance uh, in in the movie, um, even if that romance is, is forced or completely unnecessary, and it is uh, both in this film. Yeah, because this is the only time we've had any sign of it. It's come out of nowhere. And we don't really see Joyce again until the end. So, you know, it just, it, it, felt, it felt like something they came up with at the last minute. Yeah, it felt like they came up with a character. They were like, this is an informant character. And it felt like they figured that, like, oh, you know, because um, it's a female informant, um, I guess she's going to have to be a love interest at some stage. Yeah. So, yeah. So at the, so at Sugai's golf club, he um, uh, Nick gives uh, a counterfeit dollar bill to um, to Sugai via his bodyguard, and he and after being beaten up and stuffed into a limousine, he's taken to Sugai's apartment. Oh no, actually, whoops, sorry, jumped ahead there. What happens is before before phoning Joyce, he goes to Mass he goes to Mass's apartment. Where he's met by his disgruntled son, who tells, who basically blames Nick for Mass, for for um, for for the way Mass is now. Mass is very down as he's been suspended from the force and he's no longer and he's been demoted. Um, Nick yeah. also sees Charlie's badge on Mass's mantelpiece, so he realizes that Mass had a deep respect for Charlie. He tries to get Mass to come on board with him to take down. Um, to, to take down Sato and Mass uh, says no, he's not impulsive and he's not impulsive like Nick is. And that he operates best in a group. He can't be a lone wolf. And he tells Nick to leave. And before and just before Nick arrives at the golf club, we see Mass outside in his car reconsidering his his decision. So so we then so then back to Sugai's apartment, where we get sort of the main reason for the counterfeiting operation. Operation. Uh, Nick reveals to Sugai that he knows that um, Sato is the other plate, and Sugai then goes on a rant saying Sato is more like an American that he only 
is interested in money. He then tells this long story about how he was a 10-year-old in, uh, in a, a Hiroshima when the atom bomb was dropped, and that afterwards, um, the rain that fell, that fell from the sky is like was like black rain, hence the title of the film, that the Americans made the rain black. And so as a result of this, he's going to... Um, uh, and, that, and, that, and that the American mentality that permeated Japanese culture not only destroyed, you know, again, the Japanese sort of cultural identity, but also created thousands like Sato. And um, Sugai considers his counterfeiting operation, um, you know, um, you know, counterfeiting US dollars as a form of revenge. Nick, um, I, this is one of the few moments in the film where it really achieves a sense of power. It really adds a sense of dimensionality to its Japanese characters and gives them a justification for their actions that involves American imperialism um, and which slightly redeems it from the charges that were pressing off it, off, off it being racist. Uh, I don't know what you think. Um, I agree. I I I agree with that. I I don't. Um, see the thing is, um, I can still watch and enjoy this film, and I don't think, uh, I don't think by and large, I don't think the film's worldview, or you know, and I certainly don't think that um the the filmmakers or or Michael Douglas. Are kind of racist or um, have a kind of racist worldview, and I don't think the mo- the movie is wholly racist, but I do think um, because of the time it was made in, I think there is blind spots, and I think that mm. there is things that definitely come off as racist, and I think that there is there is moments like this where you can kind of. You can kind of see it almost from the other side of like um kind of talking about uh, American imperialism, uh, like you said, and a kind of uh, sympathy towards some of the Japanese characters, and almost um a, a kind of almost anti-racist thing there. But like there there is it just it just leans into so many kind of tropes of the time and goes for uh, so many kind of easy punchlines like you know things we've not mentioned that are kind of you know not important to the plot which is why we've not mentioned them but there's a a bunch of like small lines about kind of uh, making digs at Japanese food that kind of stuff you know kind of like oh are you going to eat that muck you know like that kind of that kind of thing and initially with the um with the chopsticks you know making you know kind of uh, playing along with that there's gags about that and you know, there's just lots of little things that just feel quite, yeah, to feel quite, quite ugly or quite racist now. And even the thing we were talking about um, earlier about the common trope of the time of like not subtitling characters, which makes them less of a character and stuff like that. You know, there's just a whole bunch of stuff like that 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 does feel very problematic and does feel racist. And I think there is parts of this movie that are racist. Um, but I, I don't think that, I don't think the filmmakers or the stars or anything set out to make a racist movie. Um, there's just certain kind of uh, blind spots of the time that 
feel very racist now and and yeah. f- and even felt racist then because like a lot of people yeah, you know, yeah a lot of people bit, critics, bit of critics um, felt yeah. the same way at the time yeah so nick then says that he can retrieve the other plate for sugai and by and kill sato for him without the other yakuza knowing and asks sugai to get and asks sugai to get him close to sato so the next morning they're meeting at this I guess sort of Yakuza mansion in this winery field of, of this of this mm-hmm. vine of this vineyard, which is clearly shot in LA because it looks a lot like the kind of vineyards you get in like the Napa Valley. Um Nick it is, is. <laughs> yeah, it is. It is, exactly. So um so Sugai is meeting with Sato and four and four other Yakuza heads, and Nick is assigned to kill Sato with a shotgun. However, um, Sato's Nick discovers that Sato's other men are surrounding the building, and that Sato is planning an ambush on the other Yakuza bosses in order to take full control of all their territory. Um, yeah. One. What if Sato? Wondered... Yeah. Sorry. Oh. No, no. No. Oh no. no! I just like I. I was reading about like the the scene and you know what you were saying about like the red tape and the bureaucracy and and Ridley Scott getting fed up of that and then they're you know, kind of running out of time and they have to. Uh, filming days, the filming permits in Japan, so filming this in the Napa Valley, and then uh, a lot of the extras who played kind of uh, the the kind of you know the kind of henchmen yakuza yeah. yakuza henchmen, uh, yeah. they, a lot of them they couldn't get visas for, mm. and I think you do notice that because they do like like different gangs, yeah, you know? like yeah. I, I they, you know I think I do definitely feel like that's like a noticeable thing of like. You feel like uh, in a slightly in a slightly different different film, you know. Like it's like, oh, you know, you you had a the the gangs had a kind of I looked to them and it's like, oh, these are you do get that sense of like these are dif- different people because uh, uh, because they are. <laughs> so so one of Sato's men almost gets the drop of Nick, but Mass comes in to save the day. He's made up his mind. Uh, after much cajoling from Nick, which is another problem I have with the film, the interactions between what, what Mass learns from Nick and what Nick learns from Mass are incredibly one-sided. It's mostly Mass learning how to be a kick-ass American, gun-toting American from Nick, not so much from the not so much from Nick learning how to be more Japanese. Um, but that's by the it by. does yeah it doesn't feel very even does it it, it feels it feels like you know um yeah Nick is you know top mass to be a kind of rogue one man army <laughs> yeah but 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 anyway um Sato arrives arrives at at the meeting with the other plate and um and Sugai demands that he that he um do the honourable thing and cut off his little finger which he does and and and. Um, and then what happens is, is that Sato's other bodyguards then then burst in and start killing the other Yakuza bodyguards, and an all-out um, firefight breaks out, which Sato escapes. Where Sato escapes, um, we also see Mass and um, get a few shots in when he's shooting at um, Sato's men, which gives Ken Takakura a chance to shine. Although not as much, I have yeah. to say, as in the Yakuza. Which I recommend, right. which I recommend that okay. people watch as an antidote. Yeah, to this I've, film. I've not, seen, I've not seen that. It's been on my watch list for a long yeah, time. Yeah, it's it's so like I will, I will get round to it. Yeah, it's like the parallel opposite of this film, 
But anyway, Sato escapes um, racing oh, through the vineyards. I do feel like we should mention, um, before we move on to Sato's escape, I do feel we mentioned when, when Sato's henchmen killed the other henchmen, um, we get cameos from Professor Toro Tanaka oh, yeah. um, for, of, of Running Man and uh, Three Ninjas fame. And uh, we also get um, uh, a cameo from the ultimate henchman, Al Leong. Oh, I just yeah. thought I'd, I'd chip that in. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, yeah, of course, of course, those who have seen Die Hard a bajillion times will know Al Leong. He's very prominent in that film. But anyway, Sato is escaping on a motorbike and uh, Nick chases after him using the skills we saw at the beginning of the film. There's an epic chase through the vineyard. Um once again, really well filmed, um, lots of great aerial shots. And then both bikes eventually crash and Nick and Sato then scrap in the in the um in the muddy field, vineyard fields. And I know you were criticizing Michael Douglas's fighting style earlier on, but I feel like it really works in this like scrappy fight to the death where both men are just doing whatever it takes to um to 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 kill one another. The fight choreography is not going to be perfect. I mean, we get scenes where mm. both Saturn and Nick get shoved up against the spinning bike wheels, you know, in an attempt to to from one to kill the other. And then it sort of moves into like this forest area. And we see both Nick and Sato getting increasingly muddied as the fight continues. And I I, I think Michael, both Michael Douglas and you know, the dying Yusaku Matsuda do an excellent job in this fight scene. Um, but what I think so. And I, yeah. No, no, I you... would agree with that. I would agree with that. No, all, all I was mentioning was that, like, in terms of, like, um, uh, in terms of, like, action stars, you know, obviously. I mean, obviously, like, uh, Michael Douglas is, is not, like, a no. martial artist or anything. And and I, I guess, like, you know, it kind of cuts to the kind of culture clash thing because, um, you know, obviously Matsuda is using kind of martial arts in the fight scene and um, uh, Michael Douglas is uh, employing what I would call the American Clint Eastwood mm. punchy style. Oh, yeah. Um, and um, he's not as good as as at the at, at that as Clint Eastwood is. Um, but... Um, I guess or 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 like Charles Bronson or whatever you know like um but uh you that's kind of all yeah all punching and 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 that's 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 the the kind of main thing but no I do think it's a good fight I think uh, Michael Douglas acquits himself fine um and I think that it's a uh, it's it's shot really well and the the it's um, them rolling about in the mud, and it's quite intense. And mm. like you say, the way they kind of switch back and forth, and you think that somebody's going to get their face smashed off by with the uh, with the the running motorcycle wheel. And I don't know if I can. I don't know if I can mention it now. Yes, you um, can. Yeah, yeah. Go, go right, ahead. Okay. Are you, yeah. Are you talking about the spike seed? Yes. Yes. Okay. So at the very end. Go ahead. At the, at the very end of the fight, and this this cuts to like Ridley Scott being a great filmmaker. Um, but at the very end of the fight, uh, basically, um, Nick has Sato. It looks like he's going to drop him down on this wooden spike, impaling him and killing him to get revenge uh, for his partner Charlie. But then we smash cut 
to him bursting through uh, the 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 uh, uh, police headquarters door um, and uh, sat was in cuffs. And I I thought that was a, a genuinely great kind of like uh, you know jump out your seat and, and clap kind of moment of like yes <laughs> because it shows that one Nick has actually learned something. Nick has learned not yes. to be such a violent arsehole. Although originally they did actually film an ending where Michael Douglas impales Sato on the spike. But then Ridley Scott was like, oh, that doesn't make any sense. So they went back and reshot it. <laughs> yeah, that, that makes sense. That makes sense. That, make, that makes sense. So, um, what so what happens is, is obviously Sato is brought into custody by Nick and Mass. We then see a latest then we then cut to him and Mass, both Nick and Mass being honored by the superintendent, whilst Joyce looks on. Um, there's a brief conversation between her and Nick where Nick thanks Joyce for picking a side and they both kiss. And then at the airport, um Nick and Mass say goodbye. Um Mass then mentions how the police never found the missing plates, the missing printing plates. But then gives Nick a goodbye gift for his kids. Um, Nick then goes to bow to Mass, one of the few bits of Jap Japanese culture he learned. Mass says, no, it's no, in Japan, best friends do this. Gives Nick a good old handshake. And as Nick walks off, Mass opens his presents to initially find a very nice shirt, but underneath the missing plates, showing that corruption, showing that stealing evidence works after all. And with that, <laughs> we close out. So, on that note, oh, we um, we have to say we we close out in classic eighties style yeah. on a freeze frame thumbs up from Michael yeah. Douglas <laughs> as as Greg Ullman plays us out. Yes, yeah, 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 yeah. It could not be the opening and the closing couldn't be more eighties if it tries. <laughs> oh, yeah. So that was so that was Black Rain. Scott, your final thoughts. Ah, my final thoughts. Okay, so um, I, I guess like people have probably got uh, a beat on my thoughts. I do think this. I, I know some people love this movie, um, but like I'm more middling on it. Um, I think it is. It's got some really great stuff in it. Uh, Hans Zimmer's score is great. The cinematography is fantastic. Oh yeah. Um, like uh ridley really shoots the shit out of japan like it, it just looks great on screen um there's so much um so many kind of great neo-noir looking things um he shoots it kind of like uh you know it there's you know it's it's an interesting you know be interesting to watch black rain and blade runner back to back you know just um for some of the visual comparisons um this is an interest this is an interesting film as well because like the original script for this film was a possible script for Beverly Hills Cop 2 which was directed by Tony Scott and mm. this is the Ridley Scott movie that is most like a Tony Scott film um so that's that's interesting but like i think there's some really great stuff in it some of the action sequences are great um i think the stuff that kind of lets it down or or kind of drawbacks is you know we've got like the forced romance at the end that's very tacked on we've got some moments that um just in terms of like uh just in terms of like the kind of uh ideas the kind of uh in, in, kind of, in terms of the racism um there's there's a couple of moments that will probably um if you are a viewer of any sort of liberal bent that there's probably a 
at least a few moments that will make you wince throughout this film. Um, and there is the kind of central protagonist problem of like how much you get on board with Nick Conklin and how much you find his antics kind of funny or entertaining um, in the way that they are presented. Um, because like for a lot of this film, the central character almost drags it down. And it's not necessarily Michael Douglas's fault. I, I guess, um, you know, he is supposed to be the kind of sleazy anti-hero. And, you know, if you want a sleazy anti-hero, Michael Douglas is your man because he knows exactly how to play that. But because he plays the sleazy anti-hero so well mm. and we are supposed to like him at some stage, He's just not as good at as being kind no. of charming. He's not particularly charming throughout I the film. I think and also, like... also the problem is, is that the main problem is is that in these kind of culture clash body buddy cop movies, usually yeah. both cops learn an equal amount from each other. In this That's film, true. it's all very one-sided. It's pretty much Ken Takakura as mass having to learn how to stand up for himself and become a badass one-man army. Uh, you know, yeah. Nick is constantly dragging him along and encouraging him to become more Western like that. We don't really get much about Nick learning about humility and about and about you know um, becoming becoming more of an you know learning more of a sense of honor from Mass. I mean, okay, he seems to slightly re reflect re regret and reflect in his actions in the market scene. But then later on, we find out he's back to his old ways again by giving Mass the plates. That makes that whole scene pretty much pointless. I mean, okay, Mass is a good guy who needs the money, but, you know, Nick hasn't really learned from his actions. No, not 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 real. I mean, I, I guess you you could say he's kind of he's kind of a bit better because he didn't just steal them for himself. But like, um. Yeah, no, like you say, I think that is a problem. I think, um, and I think like a lot of critics mentioned that at the time of like the, the character um, seems kind of too invulnerable, um, kind of, you know, it just kind of smashes his way through the film and is quite arrogant and condescending to pretty much everybody he meets in his, um, he never kind of learns that humility. Yeah. Um, so, so yeah, that 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 is an issue, and I think, but I do also think that some of the, because you know, uh, we're often comparing this movie to Lethal Weapon, and I think because it's clearly made in a, a kind of Lethal Weapon vein. Um, I think like if it was more like Lethal Weapon, it could be better if it kind of leaned into more kind of humor and craziness, mm, yeah. and I think that. The the I think the reason you know obviously Mel Gibson is all sorts of problematic nowadays, but like we didn't we didn't know that back in the the original uh, Lethal Weapons when they were being made, and I think what makes Martin Riggs kind of work as a character is even though on the surface he is completely mental and also entirely unlikable, because uh, Gibson plays him with such charm. You lend him away with a lot of things, and because he plays mm. him with humor as well, you lend him away with a lot of things. But because Nick Conklin is largely humorless and is not like, um, and Michael Douglas doesn't have that same sort of 
of no, winning no, charm that kind no. of wins people around. He just has like this kind of he's he's yeah. He, yeah you know it's a michael douglas character is a kind of like a kind of sleazy oiliness to him that is like uh that you know he never gives it that kind of uh winning charm that kind of wins you around and and makes you do that thing where you know the character does something terrible but you kind of roll your eyes and go oh that that martin riggs you know like oh. you know you never feel that same way about nick conklin you're always just like fucking nick conklin jesus yeah get over yourself man <laughs> so i mean so in so in summary michael douglas is problematic because he's not like mel gibson that's a phrase i never hear in, well you I know like in terms of like his acting style like okay. obviously michael douglas is a less problematic person in real okay. life i do want to qualify okay well <laughs> on that note um i think we'd better i think we'd better call it and end at that um this has, been, this has been um, a, a, this has been our episode on Black Rain. Um, next time in Films That Time Forgot, we'll be covering the little-known Alec Baldwin superhero film from 1994, The Shadow. Thank you for joining us. Um, Scott, any um, uh, what have you got coming up next? Just tell us very briefly. All right. Yes, uh, of course. Um, so uh, New Horror Express is, is is wrapping up. We've got like maybe two more episodes, and and then I'm I'm kind of closing that one down. Um, we are going to do. Uh, we're we're currently kind of on hiatus. Uh, with the the action podcast, but we're going to come back in 2024 to do a 1994 season. Uh, we're going to kick that off uh, with uh, January, uh, where we'll be we'll be covering uh, Drunken Master Two. And that's my box. Okay, that's great. Well, until next time, uh, keep watching. Uh -huh.